You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Mystery of the Universe, The Human Being, Image of Creation, formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 9. The task underlying our present studies is, in the widest sense, to try to understand the universe through our interconnection and relationship with it. I am far from wishing to convey the idea to those who have had certain glimpses into the universe during the foregoing lectures that the truth of these matters can be found in any quick and easy way, such as one finds in ordinary astronomy when it tells of the celestial motions. I would, however, like the friends who have come to the general meeting not merely to hear something that comes right in the middle of a consecutive series of lectures, but from these lectures held during the general meeting, to take away with them a self-contained picture that can stand on its own. I will therefore continue our studies of yesterday in a particular way, and give no more than an indication of how the conception of the nature of man leads to the conception of the universe, its nature and its movements. Of course this subject is so vast that it is impossible to exhaust it for the friends who are now present. It will be continued later. For the benefit of those here for the first time tonight, I should like to put before them, at any rate, a few of the salient features of what has arisen in previous lectures. From other lectures you all know of the relationship in human life between waking and sleeping. You know that in the abstract the relation is something like this. In the waking condition physical, etheric and astral bodies, together with the ego being, are in a certain inner connection, whereas during sleep the physical and etheric bodies are united, but the astral body and the ego are separated from them at any rate, in comparison with the waking state. This, as you know, however, is merely an abstract observation, for I have often emphasized that everything belonging to our limb nature, which continued into our inner organization, is also the real bearer of metabolism. All this part of us, connected as it is at the same time with the human will, is really in a perpetual state of sleep. We must be absolutely clear that while we are awake, this state of sleep continues as far as our inner organization is concerned. We can therefore say that our limb being, as bearer of our will being, is in a permanent state of sleep. Our circulation or rhythmic being, which may be described as mediating between the head organization and our limb being, the latter extending into our interior in metabolism, is in a continuous dream state, 
This rhythmic system is, at the same time, the outer instrument for our world of feeling. The world of feeling is rooted wholly within our rhythmic organization. And while our metabolic system, together with its outward extension, the limbs, is the vehicle of the will, the rhythmic system is the vehicle of our feeling life and is related to our consciousness in the same way as our dream state to our waking life. Between waking and falling asleep, we are only really awake in our life of ideation or ideation and thought. Thus, man in his life between birth and death is in an intermittent waking state in respect to his life of thought, in a dream state regarding his emotions and feelings, of which the rhythmic system is the vehicle, and in a state of continuous sleep as regards his limbs and metabolic system. We must realize at this point that really to understand human nature it is necessary to fix our attention upon the fact that our limb nature extends inward. All the processes that are ultimately connected with the abdominal abdominal region, everything connected with assimilation, digestion, as also with the secretion of milk in females and so forth, all these processes are a continuation of limb nature, but directed inward. So that in speaking of the will nature or metabolic nature, we do not mean only the outer limbs, but the continuation inward too of this limb activity. In relation to all this, intimately connected as it is with our will nature, we are continuously asleep. This complicates the abstract idea we gain in the first place of the departure of the ego and astral body when we fall asleep and it also necessitates clarification of another important fact. When the materialistic physiologist of today speaks of the will, uh, saying, for instance, that it manifests in the movement of the limbs, he has in mind that some kind of telephonic signal is sent from the central organ, the brain, proceeds through the so-called motor nerves, and thus moves the right leg, for instance. This, however, is quite unproven, in fact a quite erroneous hypothesis. For spiritual observation shows the following. When someone's will allows him to raise his right leg, his ego being exerts a direct influence upon that limb, so that it is really raised by the ego being itself. But the process takes place in a state like that of sleep. Consciousness knows nothing of it. The nerve simply informs us that we have a limb. It tells us of the presence of such a limb. This nerve, as such, has no part in the activity of the ego upon that limb. A direct correspondence exists between the limb and the will, which latter is associated in man with the ego, and in the animal with the astral body. All that physiology has to say, for instance, about the speed of transmission of the so-called will needs to be revised, for this relates rather to the velocity of transmission of the perception of that particular limb. Naturally, anyone versed in modern physiology can challenge this assertion in a dozen ways. I am well acquainted with these objections. 
but we have to try to use a really logical thought process in this matter, and we shall find that what I say here corresponds with actual observable facts, while what is said in physiological textbooks does not. Sometimes, indeed, these things are so obvious as to be evident to all. Thus, at a meeting of scientists in Italy, I think it was in the 80s of the last century, a most interesting discussion took place about the contradictions which came to light between the usual theory of the motor nerves and the actual movement of a limb. But since modern physiology takes little account of the spiritual aspect of things, even during a discussion such as this, the only conclusions drawn were that contradictions existed in the hypothetical explanation of a certain fact. It would be extremely interesting if our learned friends, and there are such among us, were to investigate and test the physiological and biological literature of the last forty years. They would make extremely interesting discoveries were they to take up these subjects. They would find facts everywhere which merely need handling in the proper way to confirm the findings of spiritual science. It would form one of the most interesting tasks of the research institutes we need to start up if the following were done. First, we should carefully study international literature on the subject. We must take the international literature, for in English and particularly in American literature, most interesting facts have been discovered, although these investigators do not know what to make of them. If you look into these discovered facts and substantiate them, there is but one step more needed in the sequence of investigation, given the right kind of vision in response to which the thing will, as it were, come out and show itself, and magnificent results would be arrived at. Once we have reached the stage of establishing such an institute, furnished with adequate apparatus and with the necessary material, the facts will be found all around us, waiting, as it were. People still fail to notice the urgent need for an institute such as I have in mind. Series of tests and experiments are always discontinued just at the most critical moments, simply because people are ignorant of the ultimate direction of such experiments. Really important foundations would be laid by such an institute, foundations for practical work. People do not dream at the present time of the technology that would result if these things were actually done, first as experiments and then building further from there. It is only the possibility of practical work that is lacking. This is only by the way. To return to our subject, we have to do with a part of the human being which sleeps even while he is awake. I now wish to bring to your notice a fact which has played an important part in all older conceptions and knowledge about the universe. I refer to the idea that the moon rules the lower limbs, while the region of the larynx, which we may consider as the meeting point of the higher limbs, is associated with Mars. People of today who are deeply embedded in a modern outlook cannot, of course, make anything of such ideas. 
and the nonsense which hazy mystics and theosophists of today say or write about these things should not be awarded any special value, for these facts lie far deeper than, for instance, the repeated statements of materialistic theosophy that we have first coarse physical matter and then other rather finer than the astral, still finer and so forth. Those and similar things that pass for theosophy are in reality no spiritual teaching at all, but a spiritual untruth, for they are nothing more than a perpetuation of materialism. But things that have come down to us as remnants of ancient wisdom have power to lead us to a state of real veneration and deep humility for that ancient knowledge of man as soon as we begin to understand its meaning. Such ancient wisdom persisted not only long into the Middle Ages, but even up to the 18th century, where remnants of it may be found in the literature of the period, and perhaps into the 19th century, though here it has become mere pale reflection, so to speak, and is no longer the direct result of an original primordial consciousness. And when these things are found, introduced into quite modern literature, then they are still more certain to be pale reflections. Up to the earlier part of the 18th century, however, we can still find traces of a certain consciousness of these things. And here again an association was construed between the nature of the moon and this region of the human organism. What I have just said, that in our will-metabolic nature we are in a constant state of sleep, is most forcibly expressed in the lower limbs. In other words, through the metamorphosis which the arms and hands have undergone, man rests from unconsciousness what is really the sleep nature of our limb system. If to some degree we sharpen our sensitivity for these things, we shall perceive what a really remarkable difference exists between the movement of a leg and the movement of an arm. The movements of the arms are free and in a sense follow the feelings. The movement of the leg is not as free. I mean the laws underlying their movements. This, of course, is something which is not always noticed nor sufficiently appreciated, as exemplified by the fact that the greater portion of the public attending our eurythmy performances are mere, merely passive observers and fail to notice that the leg movements are less articulated and the movements of the arms and hands more so. The reason for this is that to understand the movements of the arms a certain cooperation of the soul on the part of the observer is necessary. In our cinema age people do not want to give this cooperation. If you watch the movements of a dance where only the legs are dancing and the movement of the arms is fairly arbitrary, there is little need either to think or feel in union with the dancer. I mention this only in passing. As we have seen, the most intensely unconscious process is at work in the movement, movements of the lower limbs. There we are, in a sense, fast asleep. People entirely fail to notice how the will works into the legs or into the abdominal region owing to this state of sleep. 
our own nature only conveys a reflection of this process to us. Of course, we observe the movements of our legs, but this observation does not make us conscious of the processes taking place in the nervous system as the will acts upon it. Only the reflection of this becomes manifest to us. The nature of our lower being turns one side away, as it were, and only the other side is turned toward us. It is exactly the same with the moon. She revolves round the earth and is altogether a most courteous lady, who never turns her back upon us, but shows us always the same aspect. She does not show us first one side and then the other on her journey round the earth. Nobody has ever seen her back. Because of this we never receive anything from the moon, which may be termed her own, but always a reflected light. In this fact we have an absolute inner parallel between moon nature and the whole inner being of man. As we look up to the moon, we understand her only as regards her external formal side, but we should try to feel her inner relationship with the lower physical organization of man. The deeper we go into these matters, the more we find this to hold good. It was the simple instinctive observations of the ancients which enabled them to realize these inner relations between human nature and the celestial bodies. Now let us take the other fact, that the arms, in their connection with the upper portion of the middle or rhythmic system, in a sense come awake in man. The movements of the arms can be taken as equivalent, at least, to the dream state. We feel that the activity of the arms is related in a much nearer sense to human consciousness than is the activity of the lower limbs. Hence we find that a person swayed by feelings generally accompanies his speech, which is in close relation to the middle rhythmic system, with a gesture of the arms, by way of emphasis or as a help in explaining his meaning. Speech is closely related to the upper part of our rhythmic being. I do not suppose there are many speakers who use movements of the legs as a help for speech or many audiences who would consider such movements attractive. So, if we have the right feeling for this necessity or tendency in man's nature, we can also feel the real relationship between the hands and arms, which belong to the upper portion of the limb system, and the middle being or rhythmic being with its spiritual counterpart in feeling. Quite naturally we try to support our speech, which is often in danger of becoming too abstract by gestures of our arms and hands. We endeavor to project our emotional nature into our speech. Today in many circles, I will not name them, it is considered a sign of intellectual clarity to abstain as much as possible from using gesture in speech. We may, however, look at the matter from another standpoint and say, if a person acquires the habit of putting his hands in his trouser pockets while speaking, it may not only mark him as a man of linguistic ability, but also perhaps as being somewhat blasé. That is another aspect of the matter. I am not speaking in favor of either of these points of view, 
but you will see how the nature of the arms clearly indicates their connection, not only with the metabolic limb system, but also with the middle, the rhythmic or circulation system. This was understood and felt by the ancients when they connected the combination of speech and arm movement with the sphere of Mars. This planet is not so intimately connected with the earth as is the moon, nor is that which underlies the foundation of speech and arm organization so intimately connected with earthly man as is that which underlies the abdominal and leg organization. In a certain sense we can say that the activity corresponding to the lower limbs works very strongly upon our unconscious realm. What corresponds to the arms and hands, however, works very powerfully upon our semi-conscious realm. It is indeed a fact that no one with wholly unskilled hands, no one wholly unable to perform any dexterous movements with the fingers, can be a very subtle thinker. He would, in a sense, seek a coarse thought mesh rather than fine links of thought. If he has coarse, clumsy hands, he is much more qualified for materialism than one whose hand movements are more adroit. This has nothing to do with having an abstract conception of the universe, but with the true inclination to a spiritual view of the universe, which always demands to be comprehended in finely meshed thoughts. All these matters are taken fully into consideration in a pedagogy that encompasses the whole human being. You would probably be very pleased if you came to our Waldorf school and visited the classroom where from ten o'clock instruction is given in handicrafts. You would see the boys as well as the girls industriously absorbed in knitting or crochet. These things are the outcome of the whole spirit of the Waldorf school for it is not a question of writing sundry abstract curricula, but of paying serious attention to the fact that what is taught should proceed from true knowledge of the human being. That as a teacher one should know the great difference it makes to the thinking, whether I understand how to move my fingers nimbly, whether I am able in ordinary circumstances to cross the middle finger over the first or not. The movements of our fingers are to a great extent the teachers of the elasticity of our thinking. These things must be followed with understanding and discernment. It is comparatively easy to acquire facility in crossing the middle finger over the first, making a serpent entwining the mercury staff, but it is not so easy to do the same with the second and third toes. In this we see what great distinctions there are in the whole organization of man. It is very important to bear this in mind, for the construction of the foot is intimately connected with our whole human earthly nature. The organization of our hands raises us above earthly nature. We raise ourselves to the super-earthly. Ancient wisdom had an intuitive sense of this, for it said that our lower region, excuse me, our lower realm belonged to the moon, but that the part of us which raised itself above earthly nature belonged to Mars. Primordial wisdom felt the organization in the whole universe in the same way as we sense the organization within ourselves. Materialism, however, has come to a point of ignorance about the human being, 
again and again I must emphasize that the tragedy of materialism is that it turns its attention to matter and all the time understands nothing at all of matter but simply loses connection with material existence. For this reason, materialism can only cause social harm. For the socialistic materialists, the Marxists, are, as regards reality, just talkers. This they have learned from the middle classes, which have indulged in materialistic chatter for centuries. But the latter have not applied it to social forms and structure, remaining satisfied with half-truths. A spiritual philosophy of life will once more reveal the nature of man, not in the abstract, but in specific soul-spiritual terms, which can have a real effect on all areas of our human existence. One cannot advance in these things without constantly turning to the other side of life. For this development which our organization manifests is twofold insofar as our upper realm is a metamorphosis of the lower realm in our last earth life. There is a point of time between death and rebirth when a complete reversal takes place, when the inner is turned to the outer, when what is present as the connection between the organization of the liver and that of the spleen is changed in the whole structure of its forces into what becomes our hearing organization, when we are reborn, the whole of our lower organization reappears transformed. In our lower realm, we have a certain relationship between the spleen and the liver. They slide into one another, as it were. What is now the spleen slips right through the liver and comes out in a certain respect on the other side, appearing again in our hearing organization. It is similar with the other organs. People say that proof should be given of repeated earth lives. Well, the methods by which such proofs can be found have first to be created. Anyone who is able to observe the human head in the right way, possessing a sense for such observation, comes to understand the transformation of our lower realm into the human head. But he cannot understand this without taking account of the intermediate stages, of our experiences between death and rebirth. In this connection we can experience some very remarkable things. It may perhaps astonish some of you when I say that an artist who has become well acquainted with our outlook said, quote, all that anthroposophy says is very beautiful, but there is no proof. De Rojas, for instance, has given proofs, for he has shown how, in certain conditions of hypnosis, Memories of former earth lives may arise. Close quote. It seemed strange to me that an artist of all people should have said such a thing. I might have replied by saying that this was the same as telling him, quote, My dear friends, your pictures tell me nothing. Show me first the original of them, then I will believe that they are good, Close quote, or something of the kind. That, of course, would be nonsense. As soon as he leaves his own field of expertise, he has no power to understand how, out of what he has before him, out of the true form of the human head, one can arrive at what is expressed in this human head. The picture must speak through itself, not through a mere likeness to the original. The human head speaks for itself. 
it corresponds to reality. It is our transformed lower realm and points us back to a previous earth life. One must, however, first develop in oneself the capacity to understand reality aright. The physical is thus seen to be a direct expression of the spiritual. It is possible to understand physical man as an expression of the spiritual which is experienced between death and rebirth. The physical world explains itself and brings the spiritual world into this explanation. But we must first know this, saying to ourselves, the phenomena of nature are only half the story, as long as we relate to them as mere sense phenomena. We must first know this. Then we can find the bridge and understand the event that gave earth its true meaning, the event of Golgotha. Then we can understand how a purely spiritual event can, at the same time, enter right into physical life. If a person is not prepared to see the relation of the physical to the spiritual aright, he will never be able to grasp the fact that the event of Golgotha is both a spiritual event and one that occurred on the physical plane. When at the Eighth General Ecumenical Council in the year 869 the spirit was abolished, it became impossible to understand the event of Golgotha. The interesting point is that while Western churches started from Christianity, they took great care that the essence of Christianity should not be understood. For the nature and essence of Christianity must be grasped through the spirit. The Western creeds set themselves against the spirit, and one of the principal reasons why anthroposophy is scorned by the Roman Catholic Church is that it relinquishes the erroneous claim that man consists of soul and body and returns to the truth that man consists of body, soul, and spirit. The fact that the Roman Catholic Church regards anthroposophy as taboo indicates the interest it has in preventing man from coming to knowledge of the Spirit, and so arriving at the true significance of the event of Golgotha. Thus the knowledge which, as we see, throws so much light on an understanding of man's true being has been entirely lost. How then can we develop an education suitable for the humanity of today, when vision of the true nature of man has been lost? To be an educationalist means to solve those sublime riddles which the child presents to us, as it gradually brings forth what has become part of it between death and rebirth. The creeds, however, reckon only with life after death, in order to humor human egotism. They have not reckoned that human life on earth should be regarded as a continuation of heavenly life. To require that we should prove ourselves worthy of what was asked of us before we entered earthly life through birth requires a certain selflessness of view, whereas until now the creeds have chiefly reckoned with egotism. Here, in anthroposophy, whatever is of the nature of creed or faith gains, as it were, a moral coloring. Here purely theoretical knowledge is made to flow into a higher ethical view of the world. Friends of anthroposophy should understand this, 
They should understand that in a sense a moral inclination to spirituality is the preliminary condition for a knowledge of spiritual beings. In our present difficult time, it is especially necessary that attention should be paid to this moral aspect of our world view. If we examine what is taking place in the outer world, we must say that materialism has given rise to empty talk, the sister of falsehood, even as far as man's ethical experience is concerned. This would become worse and worse if humanity were not helped by knowledge which leads to the spirit and which must be united with the raising of our inner moral sense. We ought to acquire a realization of how a spiritual scientific conception of the world relates to the tasks and the whole dignity of man, and we should take this sense as a starting point of our knowledge. This is only too necessary for mankind today, and one would like to find new phrases, new forms of expression in which to describe this aspect of the task of spiritual science. The end of Lecture 9